On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Dossier, presented by Metro by T-Mobile. So I went back and looked at uh, all the FOIA requests on Rampart. And after this last episode, I think it's important to give people context, sort of your story as it relates to to Rampart. Um, I'll call out some of the things that I saw, and I'm going to try and go in in an order here so that it kind of matches up. So as far as I can tell... um, the LAPD does their internal investigation into Rampart, correct? Yes. And then they create something. Bernard Parks <clears throat> requests that the FBI come in and they and they create something called um, Ramfit that you were a part of. Can you explain what Ramfit was? Sure. Um, first of all, Ramfit um, stands for Rampart federal investigative team and what LAPD initially looked at was internally like an internal affairs investigation um, you know what their uh, officers were involved in what they were doing uh, what type of criminal acts when the whole Javier Avondo situation came to light from the Rafael Perez proffer session or in I should say internal affairs interview with within the LAPD now you're looking at civil rights violations and when I say Javier Vondo he's the he was like the 22 or 23 year old kid that was uh, that was shot by Perez and Durden um, and then they planted a gun a throwdown gun that they had previously uh, obtained or stolen from uh, from another gangster and um, they basically lied, saying that Javier Vondo had a gun. He never had a gun. And they admitted that finally. Um, but this was after, this was several years after Avondo had been um, convicted with Perez's testimony. Um, so when Perez started coming clean on that stuff, because he knew that he could not be charged directly with that, um, with that information, um, that's when the FBI got involved. Because now you're talking about color of law, civil rights violations. Those are federal offenses. So the FBI, in conjunction with the LAPD, we came up with this Rampart Federal Investigation Team, RAMFIT. And what it did was, is I think there were approximately 40 uh, LAPD detectives <clears throat> that uh, put in and requested to be part of this task force. They pared it down to, I believe, five or six. And then there were five or six FBI agents. One of them was me that got paired up with each of these uh, LAPD detectives. And then we were assigned, there were so many cases, there were so many um, LAPD police officers that potentially could have been involved in part of this whole Rampart scandal. Uh, It was very voluminous. And so each of the five or six teams, the one FBI, one LAPD person, we would get assigned 
several of these different cases and we would do our investigation um, on those. So can I ask you a question? There's something interesting in here, and I remember us talking about this, but I want you to, to, to help me understand what it means. They talk about mm-hmm. something called the FBI Garrity Review Team, which initially consisted <laughs> of an SSA and six SAs who were not assigned to the Los Angeles Division's public corruption squad. The Garrity Review Team, which has been reduced in size significantly since the early review process, was and remains assigned on site at the LAPD task force office to conduct Garrity reviews of the LAPD task force material. What what are what are Garrity reviews? Um, this 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 turned into a total clusterfuck, and this is what was the big, one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem, with the whole Rampart investigation. So Garrity is. Um, let's say I'm assigned um, a shooting that involves uh, a police officer that was part of Rampart. Well, what LAPD does is, is once, that, once that shooting takes place, this is before the whole Rampart investigation starts, but if there's a shooting regarding a crash officer at Rampart, LAPD will do their own internal investigation. And part of that is they have the Board of Rights review, they bring in the officer, they bring in um, witnesses, and they do basically kind of like a mini jury, if you will. But mm-hmm. they bring people in, and they're compelled. They have to talk. Well, the problem is, is once you get those compelled statements, and they're made part of that particular case file, and then they they adjudicate that officer if there's any you know reprimands, if he could get fired, days on on the bricks, or whatever the case may be. When when Rampart, um, when the Ramfit investigation team got a hold of these case files, we could not we could not look at compelled statements. And so a Garrity team basically are people, whether it be agents, whether it be assistant U.S. attorneys outside of the investigative team, they review all the case files for Garrity issues, which means anything that any information that was provided that was compelled from an officer um, or anybody else, we are not privy to. We cannot look at that. And what happened actually early on with the whole RAMFIT task force was it was so voluminous that some of these compelled statements that were made part of these investigative files that were turned over to the FBI, um, some of the LAPD detectives they found out later on actually were able to view some of these um internal affairs reports of no fault of their own. Uh, they were just exposed to it. And so they would have to get taken off. And then we would bring in other people. Um, so that's what Garrity is, is it's basically having what they would call a dirty team. And a dirty team is made up of people that have nothing to do with the investigation, but they go through all these documents and reports to make sure that there's no compelled statements. Had you ever had to to deal with something similar in your career as regards to that? No, this was all this was all pretty much new to everybody, and that's one of the reasons that caused so many issues. Was um, there was just there was too much. There were too many Garrity uh, issues. Or there were too many documents that had to be reviewed for Garrity issues that. You know, you've got five. You've got five teams of an FBI and an LAPD detective, 
just wanting to, to, to run with all this information that we're, that we've been provided. But before we could look at any of the files regarding a particular case, it had to go through a Garrity review. Well, FBI agents and assistant U.S. attorneys, they've got all their other cases that they're working. And for them to go through an entire case file and then have to redact and go through all um, to, to basically remove anything that could be a Garrity issue. It just it was to say it went at a snail's pace would would, would be an understate. It was it was a yeah. complete cluster. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and and that that brings up another another point. I mean, I, I'm reading the Ramsey caseload began with 282 incidents or cases. So if you you read some of this stuff, you know, the obvious, the shooting of Ovando, um, a money theft incident with Perez and Durden, a gun plant. Um, a beating of, 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 of Isabel Jimenez, a fatal shooting of Carlos Perez Vertiz um, by by Palomares and Galindo. I mean, this is a gun pl- another gun plant incident, uh, another gun plant, a, a money <laughs> property theft incident. I mean, the list of this is just staggering. Um, Don, you have no idea. It's beyond staggering. I mean, these, yeah. The, the, first of all, the number of officers, and, I, and, I, and by no means am I saying that every officer was, was guilty of these allegations or that every officer that worked in Crash or Rampart was, was a bad cop. I'm not saying that at all. But the number of allegations that were brought to us and the cases, and these are all based on internal affairs investigations by LAPD, it, it was beyond voluminous. It was crazy. Yeah, it, it, it almost, it, it seemed like it, it just, uh, an investigation like this, you would have to spend five years unpacking yeah. this stuff to be and, able and, to. Yeah, and, that's, and, and you know what? That's what should have been done then. The problem was that things got so bogged down that that uh, I think there was what they would call, you know, rampart fatigue and people were getting frustrated because me and I know me and my partner, um, she was she was a fantastic detective um, out of LAPD. And we're just like we're chomping at the bit saying, look, let's let's go through this stuff, because, by the way, if somebody's not guilty of an allegation, let us clear them so they can get on with their career. Um, and not have something like this hanging over their head, because all the all these officers that were alleged to be involved in all these uh, criminal acts over at Rampart, you know what? We either need to find them guilty, or we need to uh, to clear them of these allegations. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to go through the entire case file of each one of these incidents. And how many did you say there were? Two hundred and eighty-two or two hundred eighty-eight incidents? Yes, two hundred. Yeah, two two hundred. It says here in these files. Um, hold on one second. Let me just double check. Yeah, two hundred and eighty-two incidents. Yeah, that were and, and assigned each, to Ramfit SAs. Exactly, and 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 so break that down uh, among five teams. That means each team is going to have what 55 60 of these cases and each of these cases involves uh, uh lapd officers and you're going to have a full file on it 
I mean, that's a, that is a ton, a ton of work. And now before you can even, before I could even look at a file or any of the other investigators look at these files, you have to have other agents or other assistant U.S. attorneys go through each document of each of these cases and basically redact or make sure that there's no Garrity issues. Because if it ever came up down the, down the road, let's just say we're, say, six, seven months into an investigation and uh, we realize, oh, my God, we actually were exposed to this document that was not reviewed for Garrity. It, the whole case gets thrown out. I mean, it's so voluminous and so tedious, and that's really what bogged things down a lot. It's uh, it's, it's it's staggering. Um, the next part of this story is 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 just pretty unbelievable, and I think we've we've talked about it prior. But I want to read you something, <laughs> and and talk about this specific individual and how this story spiraled out of control when when you guys came in to investigate so there was a woman and i have a 302 uh from a sonia flores okay she was interviewed concerning her association with former los los angeles police officer rafael perez um miss flores states that she met perez in 91 at the pan american nightclub which was near the rampart station uh i guess perez would hang out there with david mack Sammy Martin, Nino Dernan. Uh, Sonia Flores states that st- sometime during late 94 or early 95, she was present when Perez and another officer, mm-hmm. David Mack, a.k.a. Santos, committed a double homicide. Um, on the night of the shooting, she was picked up in a black BMW that belonged to the girlfriend of another police <laughs> officer, Sammy Martin. Um, in this 302, she goes on to describe many, many things that went on at a, at a, at a sort of an apartment or trap house that Mac and Perez and Martin and what, what is the story of Sonia Flores? She says so much, obviously the homicide is anything she said true. Tell me what happened with Sonia Flores. All right. You're going to want to be sitting down for this because it's a pretty amazing story. Um, so Sonia Flores, first of all, the, the LAPD crash officers, they had a pad, which basically they would take, you know, girlfriends or what have you back to this apartment and hang out and do their thing. Sonia Flores was sleeping with Rafael Perez. Perez was married at the time, had a family, but uh, apparently he's whispering things into Sonia Flores' ears that he's going to leave his wife and that she's the one for him. So she's all in with Rafael Perez. And I think she states that she was going to have a child, but ends up getting an abortion from Perez. Yes, she did state that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so, um, at some point Perez, whatever, gets tired of her, what have you. And he, he breaks things off and she's pretty hurt by it. Well, after that happened, it comes out about uh, Perez being caught um, stealing or, or uh, ordering out the uh, cocaine from the LAPD evidence locker, the whole Avondo shooting, and it becomes public information in the newspapers about uh, Perez cooperating and that he ends up getting, I think it was around three years on state charges. Well, Sonia Flores read that and she freaked out. She's going like, this is bullshit. 
you know what, from what he did to me and what he's done to these other people, um, including this guy, Javier Avondo, you know what, I can't believe he's only going to jail for three years. I'm going to make it to where he goes to jail for the rest of his life. So she makes up this elaborate story that she was present when Perez and Mac committed, like you said, this double homicide. And she, she states the location where, um, where this took place uh, in downtown L.A. And the interesting thing is, Dawn, is, is <clears throat> she, she would get her hair done in downtown L.A. by this one gentleman. That, that gentleman had a brother that lived down in Mexico that also had a hair salon. So she oftentimes would actually go down into Mexico as well. So she was very familiar with Mexico and where this hair salon was. So she concocted this story and, and on, on its face, it, it made sense or it seemed to be true to a lot of people because she provided so much intimate detail. So she said that she was present when when uh, Perez and Mac went up to this second story apartment um, and we had the and we were able to figure out what the address was and approach this gentleman and say that uh, he, had, he owed a drug debt and that uh, Perez and Mac uh, killed this guy execution style. And when they did that, this, this guy's uh, mother came running out uh, from the back bedroom and and threw herself over her dead son and was sobbing and everything like that. And uh, Perez and Mac uh, told Sonia Flores, don't you say a word. And what they did was, is what she said they did was that they put the body in the back of a black BMW, drove it down to Mexico and buried the bodies. Well, we were able to find the black BMW um, and we actually went down into Mexico um, with the help of the Mexican authorities, their federal police out of Mexico City. And we, they, they were basically, the FBI was looking at their entire story, each little detail. And while this is all going on, me and my partner at the time, um, this, is, this is after uh, the RAMFIT task force had kind of been disbanded a bit and it was being pared down. So now it was myself and my FBI partner. And we're going like, this, this doesn't make sense, man. And one of the interesting things happened that, that basically kind of rang a bell in my head was she needed, she needed protective custody because now she was coming out supposedly saying about how these police officers committed these murders. So one night it was my, I was on the, on the job where I was protecting her and her child and we were at this hotel. And she'd only been in protective custody uh, a couple days. And she says, you know what? I want to go across the street and uh, go have dinner. I think it was at Applebee's. And I'm like, Sonia, you can't do it. We cannot go outside. Um, it's for your own safety. And she goes, you know what? I'm tired of this. Um, I'm going over there. And so I call my boss and I say, hey, look, if she, she, she's walking out the hotel room with her child right now. I'll be with her, but there's, you know, I can't physically just grab her and stop her from leaving. But again, she's only been in protective custody for two days. Well, that right there told me that, you know what, this whole story, this is all made up. This is not making sense at all. Well, while, while the other agents are, are following up on some of the leads that the lead prosecutor of the Rampart case, Mary Andrews, was having them do, 
myself and my and my FBI partner, um, L.J. Conley, we decide to start looking for the dead bodies because we're thinking like this story isn't true. Don, we found the person, this guy named Salvador Arias and his mother, uh, Maria Arias. We found them inland um, and interviewed them. And this is all going on. So they were never killed. These these they confirmed that this is where they lived. This is when they lived at this location. Um, it was on Bellevue Way, I recall. And this was all just a big made-up story. At the same time that me and my partner, LJ, are interviewing Salvador and, uh, and his mother, Maria, Mary Andrews, the lead prosecutor, has got these other agents chasing all these other leads regarding this murder, but this murder never happened. And we brought this to the attention of Mary Andrews, LJ and I. And to this day, when I get together with LJ, we, we kind of laugh about how crazy it was that she just, she would not listen to us. When all this stuff came to light, um, the lieutenant that was part of the, uh, the Ramfit uh, task force who came over from LAPD, who actually had an office at the FBI, he, he, just, he bails. He's not going to be part of this task force anymore. And nobody nobody decides to do anything about it. And there's actually a, a ton of articles that were in the paper. I know our assistant director, because Mary wouldn't talk to our assistant director about this, they actually go down after LJ and I had talked to Mary about we found the dead bodies. They're not dead. And she says, you know what? She goes, I'm still going down there. We've got too much... Um, too much resources and too much time spent in this, we're going to dig. And there's actual pictures in the LA Times that show a big hole in parts of Tijuana where the Mexican federales, we had to be on the other side of the border where they actually brought in all this heavy equipment and started digging for these bodies. And Sonia Flores drew a map saying this is exactly where the bodies are buried. They dug there, they didn't find anything. They came back and we debriefed her and she goes, no, you actually went to the wrong location. They dug again then. And finally, people are starting to think like, you know what? Maybe she's not telling the truth. And Elgin are going like, yeah, no shit. We found the body. They're, they're still, Don, it's crazy. And they're, they're still alive. Yeah, it's interesting. I have some of these articles in front of me from the, from the LA Times with headlines like, Hunt for bodies will test allegations against Perez. Um, police hunt for bodies. Uh, alleged burial site in Mexico, and and it, it's there's a ton of these articles that were covered in the press here. Um, that's that's just fascinating. And what was your final analysis if if Flores made up the homicide? But she does have other statements that she's made about other things, about drug dealing and partying, and what these guys did. Where is the line between truth and lies? You know, did she make up the the homicide, but some of the other stuff is true? Like, where where did you guys ultimately land with that? Well, Perez did talk about about Sonia Flores, and because he, you know, obviously denied being involved in these these two particular people um, being killed. But she she was able to provide some evidence that was corroborated by what we knew 
about uh, Perez and Mac and some of the other crash officers. Like she knew exactly where the crash pad was. She was able to identify what other officers would show up there and what would go on and things like that. It's just, it's just when she found out that her lover, Rafael Perez, wanted nothing more to do with her um, and that he was only going to jail for three years, that was her opportunity to, uh, to get a little bit revenge on him. And that's why she made up this whole story. The interesting thing is, is they finally agreed. Mary Andrews finally agreed. Like, yeah, okay, you know what? Maybe we should polygraph her. So she was polygraphed. And within 30 seconds, she broke down and just started bawling and admitted that it was all a big farce. And so, and so she ended up getting prosecuted for lying. What's interesting, I mean, the amount of money, right? Imagine the amount of money that was spent to go down to Mexico. In the court. I mean, in some of the FOIA things, I see all of this correspondence in Spanish between Mexican authorities, the FBI, and, and, and the U.S. attorney. I mean, that must have cost uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, correct? It, yes. In fact... When Sonia Flores had to go in front of the judge, I can't recall the name of the judge, but we were all there and, and Mary Andrews was speaking on behalf of Sonia Flores. One, one, let me backtrack for a second. One of the things when we first talked to Mary, myself and LJ about, about Sonia Flores and we felt that she was lying about everything is Mary felt, she kept telling us that, look, I'm a mother. Sonia's a mother. We have this connection. I understand what she went through with Rafael Perez. Um, I believe her, and we're moving forward on this. And, and LJR, we're just shaking our heads, going, this is unbelievable. So eventually when she fails a polygraph test, she comes clean on that she made up this entire um, story. We're in court, and Mary is, is talking on behalf of Sonia, saying that um, you know, this didn't take a whole lot of resources. She was, you know... Love struck, and I guess by Perez, she made a bad decision. The judge, Don, lit into Mary Andrews and chastised her, saying, what do you mean it didn't cost anything? And I think he estimated that this whole thing cost around $600,000 when you take into account all the people, not on the U.S. side, but as well on the Mexican side, all the meetings that took place in Mexico City, the coordination it took, the big equipment that they had to bring in, you know, big caterpillar stuff to dig these holes and stuff. I mean, this was a huge, huge operation. And it all was a big lie. And we knew it was a big lie because we found the dead bodies. I don't, from your FOIA request, do you have the interviews of, uh, of, of the two alleged victims? Yes, uh, I saw, I yeah. saw that. Yeah, I <laughs> saw the, the interviews, which is, yeah, it's, we it's interviewed pretty... them several times. It's yeah, mind-blowing, it's, it's, isn't it? It's pretty astounding. So all, so just keeping track in, in, a, in a chronological order, you guys come in, and the, the idea is Bernard Parks asks you to come in, and you're going to look at all of this stuff, and you're going to figure out, all right, what really went on here? As far as I can tell, um, Perez ends up being charged in a federal uh, plea agreement, and he gets two years, right? <clears throat> what? Where did you end up? How does the Ramfit 
FBI investigation into Rampart, where does it sort of conclude? And from your from your viewpoint, was it a success? Was did you guys do your job to look into the LAP fully? Where did it end up? There's there is a document, and again, I don't know if you have it or not. It's an it's an EC, and it was a meeting where. We went in. It was myself, um, uh, Ron Torsky was kind of the uh, the supervisor that was kind of overseeing the uh, the whole Ramfit thing, uh, especially near the end. Uh, LJ was there, a couple of the other agents, but it was really being pared down. And we went in and into this meeting, and it was not only with Mary, the the, the LA U.S. Attorney's Office, <clears throat> but uh, DOJ attorneys flying out on a weekly basis from DC to be part of this because they thought, you know, this is going to be like, you know, the case of the century. And we explained to them, it's like, look, we've got all these, these case files against all of, regarding all these allegations um, involving these Rampart officers. You guys have got to do your Garrity review so we can get to the bottom of this stuff. Again, these people are either guilty or they're not guilty. We can't just let the stuff sit here. And they kept back. They kept stating to us, and this is documented uh, on FBI uh, in an EC. This part of the case file where they specifically told us our job was to just do the investigation regarding Perez and Durden, and that it was not our responsibility to look into all these other officers, which is the biggest fucking joke I've ever heard. That's documented. And so all they were concerned about was trying to get a federal conviction on Perez and Durden. And you gotta understand, Don, Perez and Durden have already pled guilty to the state charges of this. It's, I, to be honest with you, I mean, yeah, these, these two guys are really bad cops, but I think it's kind of chicken shit to prosecute them federally on the exact same charges that they pled to on the state side. Doesn't it seem like there's a little bit of a conflict of interest on something like that? Somebody admits that they did something and now you're gonna go ahead and charge them again for that same crime? Now, if we can pin other things on these guys, that's one thing. But I don't know, a lot of us were, were kind of upset that all you're concerned about is getting a federal conviction on Perez and Durden when they've already pled guilty um, to state charges on this. It's not going to add any more time. We know what they did. Let us go after some of these other police officers to either clear them or get them convicted. They said, no, that's not our job. You guys just need to focus on Perez and Durden. And so actually myself and my partner, LJ, we were the ones that handled the proffer session of uh, Nino Durden while um, other agents handled the proper session, the federal prosecutor, federal proper session for Perez. All right. So life doesn't happen biweekly. So why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. 
So maybe you need to get your kids something special. Or you and the wife need a scintillating night out. Every once in a while, at least. So download Earn In Today. Spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. And that was the end of it. It's a joke. The only, at the end of the day, Don, you've got this massive Rampart scandal, and the only federal convictions were Rafael Perez and Nino Durden, who had already pled guilty on the state side, and Sonia Flores, who lied about those two murders. That is it. Now, there's other officers that, you know, whatever, were fired and things like that, um, or quit the LAPD task force, or uh, LAPD force. But in terms of federal prosecution of Rampart, that is it. And then the whole thing just went away. Do you think that that was by design or just the sheer sort of overwhelming volume of misconduct that just the, the it just overwhelmed the system? I think it's a combination of both. I think a lot of people just they got they got tired of this because this this task force Ramfit task force it went on for a while and we would just we would be sitting there twirling our thumbs just going like let us go let us go let us investigate this stuff and it just became so voluminous that um it just was bogging everything down it's interesting i have a headline here from an la times article that i think you'll get a a, a sort of chuckle out of perez to pay full restitution to victims under federal plea deal, the former LAPD Rampart Division officer also agrees to forego any income might receive from selling his life story. So it'll be interesting if Perez ever de- decides to tell his story, he can't keep any of that money. In his actual plea agreement, he, he, he agreed to pay full restitution to all victims and forward any money he receives from telling his story in a book, movie, or elsewhere to government entities, including the city of Los Angeles. How, how ironic is that? Yeah. And well, let me actually, ask you this. It's, yeah. Let me ask you this. Okay. Just in the Javier Ovando case, okay, um, I think he got, I think he got like 15 to 20 million or something like that. Um, now, that's taxpayer money. That should have never happened because that was all um, uh, a setup. They, you know, they used a throwdown gun. That was a bad shoot. Okay, so does that mean does that mean Rafael Perez has to pay the city back at fifteen or twenty million dollars that Javier Ovando got from the fallout? Uh, from my understanding, from the whole Rampart scandal, is it cost the city of Los Angeles around a hundred million dollars. Now, I. I don't quote me on that, but that's what I've heard, that it was around $100 million. And on top of that, how many convictions were thrown out? Not that those people weren't guilty, but you had to throw them out because now you've got a dirty cop in Rafael Perez who testified. And who's to say 
what information uh, that he was testifying about was actually true information or how much of it was fabricated just to convict these people. So I don't know how you put a dollar amount on that, but now you've got all these um, convictions that were overturned on top of the tens of millions of dollars that was paid out by the city. Does that mean Rafael Perez is going to have to reimburse the city for all that? We all know that's not going to happen. Yeah. The other thing I find interesting in, in the files is there is an article in the Los Angeles Times where a, a federal judge ruled that the RICO Act may be used against the LAPD, which could add to the city's financial liability. Now, just just think about that in context. As you know, RICO is used against mafia organizations, big drug cartels to, to bring these huge federal cases. And, and, and in a ruling that could markedly increase the city's financial exposure in the Rampart police scandal, the federal judge presiding over all Rampart-related civil suits has ruled that the Los Angeles Police Department can be sued as a racketeering enterprise. And I think what people have to also understand that happened out of this is that this is when the, the Justice Department put a consent decree on the LAPD. And for people who don't know what a consent decree is, is that basically is when the Justice Department comes in to your police department and there are monitors that that watch and basically run the police department. Right. And I think yeah. that is a story. What, what do you know about did that ever come up in conversations or what? what is your knowledge of the consent decree that was placed on the LAPD by the Justice Department? Yeah, that's where they had outside people come out um, back from DOJ to basically – a consent decree is basically you're telling the LAP and the city of L.A., you guys can't police yourselves. So we're going to have to send in these people to basically uh, to run the show and to over, oversee everything that's going on there because apparently you guys have lost control of your police department. That's what a consent decree – and I believe at the time – when uh, when this took place with the LAPD in the city of LA, that it was the largest consent decree ever in the, in the nation that had yeah. ever taken place. And you know what what I felt was important in in speaking to you, and and also in the episode that just came out, you know I felt you know th this story is so massive, right? And and obviously. You're a big piece of it. Pool's a big piece of it. But to give people real context of how you how you personally even get to the Biggie investigation, you had you have to go back and understand where you came from. You know, th this is this is institutional knowledge that that you have. And I think what I wanted to ask you in in closing is after the experience within Rampart. How did that give you context um, and give you sort of ideas when it when it all kind of flowed into the Biggie Smalls investigation? Just to just to bring us back full circle of why telling what happened in Rampart, what telling what happened with Perez and Mack in this investigation, telling what Chief Parks did, and how how much corruption was actually there. Give me a little context of, of, of why then you, you use some of that knowledge in the, in the stuff with Biggie. Let, let me, I'm going to try to break it down um, as simple as I can, even though it's, 
very convoluted. There's tons of details. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to try not to be too long winded about this. So let me start sure. off with the Rampart case. Okay. One of the cases that we had that we were not able to look into for a variety of reasons because of the Garrity issue. And, and again, it just became such a cluster was a bad shooting, according to Rafael Perez, that involved a crash police officer named Ruben Palomeros. Okay. That's we in were not the documents, able- by the way. There, 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 all, there is mention. Was it it's a murder? A t- because yeah, was it a, yeah. yeah, it was a murder. That that's what's mentioned in the documents is a murder that involved Palomares. Yeah, and it, and actually, and it, and it mentions, I believe, the other police officer's name. I, is it? I think it's uh, Galindo. But anyways, so there's there's a, there's a shooting right there. Perez said that it was a bad shoot. I'm not saying Perez was saying that telling the truth or that it was the truth. Bottom line is, though, we need to look into it. We were not able to look into that. There was another police officer that was involved in Rampart named William Ferguson, who was who had, I believe at the time, had been involved in five or six sort of rights hearings for all types of misconduct. We could not look into allegations against him. The reason I mentioned those two people is now... As the Rampart case is kind of ramping down and, and it's just turned into this big cluster and it's basically just myself and LJ are two remaining agents on the case, I get called in to the office of my boss and he goes, Phil, he goes, I got a case for you. Um, he goes, but there's going to be one issue. And I instantly knew what it was. I said, look, if Mary Andrews is the AUSA, I'm not interested because she was the lead prosecutor of the Rampart case. And understand, Mary and I had worked many previous uh, corruption cases. I did a lot of prison corruption cases with her. Got along with her great. Everything was fine. But after I saw what happened regarding the Sonia Flores situation and how she handled that, I just did not, I just didn't want to work with her anymore. My boss says, no, Phil, you know what? You're going to want to work this case. It looks like one of the Rampart officers that we wanted to look into was just busted trying to buy 10 kilos of cocaine from an undercover DEA agent down in San Diego. Now, if we would have been able to look into this bad shooting regarding Ruben Palmeros, we might have been able to get Mr. Palmeros before he was engaging in all this other criminal activity. Well, let's fast forward. I go ahead and I get the case and I work in the Ruben Palmeros case. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but what I was told is that was the biggest police corruption case in the city of L.A. and possibly in the country. It was a big deal. We had a lot of people to cooperate. And maybe for another day, we can talk about that Paul Merrill's case. But one of the one of the officers that was also involved, LAPD officers that was involved in the Paul Merrill's case was a guy named Jesse Moya, who ended up being represented by an attorney named Bill Secchi. Now, not to make things too convoluted, going back to Rampart, when I talked about how <clears throat> I was one of the two agents that handled the proffer session of Nino Durden, who was the partner of Rafael Perez. His attorney was Bill Secchi. I had a relationship with Bill Secchi based on how we handled the proffer of Nino Durden. So now when Jesse Moya is brought up regarding this Paul Merrill's case, and he's a current LAPD officer, he won't talk to me. Bill Secchi gets a hold of me and says, hey, Phil, you remember me? I said, yeah, I remember you from the Nino Durden uh, Perez, the Rampart case. 
And he goes, yeah, I'm representing Jesse Moya. He goes, I got one question for you. You approached my client and he basically told you to fuck off. He goes, do you have enough evidence to convict my client? And I said, Bill, I do. And you know how the federal government works. The first one to the table that cooperates always gets the best deal. And he goes, okay, I'll get back to you. Within a week, I'm sitting in a room with Bill Setti and uh, Jesse Moya, and Jesse fully cooperates. And by the way, Jesse Moya got kind of tied into this with Ruben. He's a, he was a good kid at the time. But, yeah, he, inv- he was involved in a bunch of these home invasion robberies and burglaries uh, with Paul Merrill and his whole crew. Now, when I talk to Jesse and he cooperates then, he gets back to me and says, hey, I got to renege on this. I, I'm going to lose my job. I can't be part of this. And I go, Jesse, lose your job. You're going to fucking jail. Losing your job is the least of your concerns here. What's going on? And he goes, oh, I talked to um, one of the deputy chiefs, Mike Burko, and he told me that I would get fired if I cooperated with the FBI. Oh, okay, Mike Burko. That's the first time his name comes up now. Well, I end up getting Jesse to cooperate. That pisses Burko off. We ended up we end up wiring Jesse Moy to go after all the other corrupt um, law enforcement officers and civilians that were part of this. And that's when the whole thing with Burkos comes up. So you can see how things tie in from the Rampart case to the Palmeros case. Well, now, after working the Palmeros case and I'm and I'm working it with a couple of LAPD detectives, that's when I start looking into the Biggie case, because, again, it involves these same police officers about regarding the shooting of Biggie and the corruption of LAPD. And that's how Burko then starts realizing, oh, shit, looks like the FBI and Carson are now looking into this. I'm going to go ahead and allow them to have Sambar and Mora as we put this Biggie case, find out as much as I can about what's going on, which that he allows then Mora and Sambar to travel down to New Orleans with me and meet with Perry and, and look at their case file. And when I come back and brief Burko with, uh, with our information that we had obtained, that's when he yanks these guys off the case. Cause that's when he puts in his game plan of like, okay, you know what? We can't have another Rampart scandal. We definitely can't have another Ruben Paul Merrill's case, which I believe we had had, had having 19 people convicted. Uh, it was two fugitives. That rocked the uh, that rocked the LAPD department. So he says, "Okay, I'm going to go and pull Sambar and Mora off the Biggie case, and that way I can just ruin Carson. But I don't want to ruin two of my own best detectives. And that's when I have to start briefing Burko about everything that's going on in the Biggie case. Well, once we realize that some of this information is being leaked to the LA Times, I go to my bosses. I explain all that." Um, and that's when they say, okay, well, let's go ahead and back off on some of these briefings. And that's when Chuck Phillips steps in. Because now Chuck Phillips isn't getting his information from LAPD because I refuse to, to uh, brief Deputy Chief Burko anymore. And that's when Chuck Phillips says, okay, well, if I can't get this information from Burko and the LAPD, I'm going to force Carson to tell me what's going on. Because if he doesn't, I'm going to go ahead and drag his name through the mud and write these bullshit articles that ruin him, ruin this case, and makes the FBI look bad. And so Chuck Phillips starts doing that. So this is this it's is crazy. what by the time you arrive at Biggie, this is years and years of institutional knowledge of 
of the the inner workings of basically the machine of the LAPD, the machine of the city attorney, the machines of the the U.S. attorney. And what it really does is it just gives you a background of how you arrive to where you arrive, you know. And I, I think we've told your story in a very sort of, you know, new information, what is new, but we didn't cover the context of, of what you just told, you know. So you're not coming into Biggie as this, you know, guy who just decides, hey, I love I, I, this is a famous guy who shot and killed. You actually came from the institutional LAPD corruption that you had been investigating for years and saw how it was handled, how it was handled in the press. And I think that's important because I think these stories, it's very easy in this day and age for people to go on the internet and give these, you know, 15, 20 minute interviews that are broad general uh, uh, analysis of a story that is massive and, and oh, yeah. to really understand it and to see, you know, and, and the other thing is, is, you know, I think we, we've done this prior, you know, I'm sitting here looking at internal law enforcement documents. I, I'm not seeing anyone else when they talk about these things reference anything. They reference their words. They're not they're not they're not saying, hey, Phil, what about this file? What about this statement that's here? What about this? And and that's where I, I struggle with some of the stuff that that gets put out. And, and you know, listen, put Greg Kading in that bucket. But there's other stuff out there also, you know, and, and I think what's important or, or what I what we've tried to do is to really define piece by piece how how deep this story really goes and to understand all of it you have to spend the time to, to understand it look don if if i were to sit down with you and go over piece by piece the rampart case and all the details and all the people involved and then if i were to sit down with you and go over piece by piece the ruben palmero case um all the different uh, players that were involved. Again, there were 19 federal convictions. Um, one of the police officers, Bill Ferguson, he went he went to trial, and we uh, he got convicted, and he's he's doing 100. I think it's 102 or 105 years in prison. Some of the other police officers, uh, 15 years, 18 years. But again, if I were to sit down and go over detail by detail on that case, on the Palmeros case, then let's move forward to the Biggie case. And if I were to go through detail by detail with you on that case, we would both be old men by the time we just got done sitting down and talking about this stuff. And it, and it cracks me up that you've got people out there that will do, like you said, these, these 10 or 15 minute interviews and they start, you know, they start critiquing either my work or the FBI or say that, um, uh, you know, Phil had a, uh, uh, a beef with Chuck Phillips. Well, you got to understand the whole background regarding Chuck Phillips. Um, oh, Phil had a beef with the LAPD. No, I didn't have a beef with the LAPD. I had a beef with a couple of people at the LAPD, like Deputy Chief Burko and a couple others. But a couple of my best friends, Morn Sambar, were LAPD detectives for almost 30 years. I still got friends there. 
or people say, oh, well, you know what? He's just mad that the U.S. Attorney's Office um, didn't prosecute this case, so he's upset with them. No, I'm not upset with them. I put together a prosecutive report that I just that I went over with my bosses and our FBI assistant director who asked, why isn't this case being prosecuted? People take people spin this stuff, Don, and they it's almost like they're trying to uh, become relevant or trying to get their 15 minutes of fame where they just start talking about stuff. And they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know all the evidence. They don't know everything that goes on uh, in an FBI case because the FBI doesn't just go out into the public and start talking about this stuff. There is so much stuff that, first of all, hasn't come out on the podcast that me and you have talked about because there's only so much information you can put out there. But there's still a lot of stuff that I haven't even talked to you about because I just can't. It hasn't been made public. And you know what? I've got a, a, a relationship with the FBI and a, and a non-disclosure to where there are certain things I can't talk about that would completely blow people's minds away. Sure. But I'm not, but I'm not like other people that are just going to blurt everything out there. Or I've, you, you know, Don, I've been approached to write a book. I'm not, I'm not going to write a book because there's a lot of stuff I couldn't put in there that would need to be put in there to tell the whole story. Yeah. But it, 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 it blows my mind. These people just, they do these interviews, uh, they get on TV or they get on the radio and, and they, they, they start attacking me or they start attacking the FBI or they start attacking this case. They don't know what they're talking about. I, I don't know how else I can put it. It's, it's that yeah. simple. So in closing, what I, what I, the final question I have is there has been an analysis, and I think Randall Sullivan was one of the first people to talk about this. In your opinion, after seeing all of this massive corruption inside the LAPD, it sounded like that Rafael Perez was a good headline to sort of put this all to bed and a lot of people walked away inside of Rampart and inside of the LAPD that kind of were never prosecuted because the story sounded great with Perez and it, they left it at that. 100% correct. Exactly. Yep. I mean, when, when, you, when people say the name Rafael Perez or they say Rampart, everybody knows what you're talking about. That's the sexy story. That's what gets the headline. And for people to say, yeah, guess what? Rafael Perez was prosecuted federally for Rampart, and he went to federal prison. So on, on its face, people hear something like that, and they say, okay, that's great. What people don't understand was is he'd already pled guilty to state charges. There was nothing new. And all the allegations that he made and all the corrupt officers that he talked about and all the police reports that we had, all the internal affairs reports that LAPD provided to us, okay? Some of that stuff did get looked into. Most of it did not. Just It's just the truth. It's the way it is. Yeah. It is what it is, man. And it became so voluminous that there was no way that we could have Garrity teams, like we were talking about, go through and comb through things to redact things that were made from compelled statements.